All right. If you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me tell you how, how much fun it is to be able to do something uh, that is Advent-ish. Although this wasn't ish, was it? It was the real thing. It was the real thing. Luke, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, a careful researcher of, of all that he wrote, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and, we be, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that you open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end. In, in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we began our Advent season this morning, and, and as Mike mentioned, Advent means coming or arrival. And so in this season, for the next four weeks, we're going to anticipate a celebration, a commemoration of the birth of Jesus Christ, the coming or the arrival, the advent of God into the world. So we are, if you will, anticipating, celebrating something that has happened in the past. And, and given the magnitude, the importance of the arrival of the Son of God into the world, it's, it's right that we would do so. But our, our celebration, Advent, is not merely just a countdown to a party. By waiting for the celebration of the birth of Christ, we also rehearse a little bit what it was like for all the people of God before Christ came. If we go back to the beginning of the, the A.D. era, something we might call uh, the year zero, plus or minus three or four years, that's the, tech, the context for the passage that we're reading this morning. The world ravaged by sin. God's people were broken, broken by sin. They were at odds with each other. They were at odds with themselves. And worst of all, they were at odds with their creator, the covenant Lord. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, they had rebelled against the covenant. They had reaped the consequences of their unfaithfulness. They were centuries earlier, seven centuries earlier, they had been vomited out of their precious promised land into first an Assyrian captivity and then the Babylonian exile. Four centuries earlier, they had returned from exile, sort of, they were back in the land, back in the land, but they were always under the control of one ruthless empire after another. And at the time of, uh, of, of our text this morning, the beginning of the A.D. era, Anno Domini, year of our Lord, Israel was a pawn of the mighty and cruel Roman Empire. The prophets for centuries before had promised that God would intervene in some way. They would restore, he would restore the fortunes of, of his people. A time of prosperity and peace, the day of the Lord, the messianic era, it was going to be wonderful. 
but it seemed so far away, and every day seemed bleaker and bleaker. And I think the situation is summed up beautifully in a phrase by C.S. Lewis in his, his wonderful classic story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I'm, I'm sure most of you are familiar with. That story tells of a make-believe country in another dimension, the country of Narnia, which, like Israel, had been created by a wonderful king, the great lion Aslan. But through unbelief and faithlessness, they had rejected their good king's rule and had fallen under the cruel leadership, rule really, of the despotic and evil white witch, Jadis. She caused a blanket of snow, ice, and bitter cold to cover Narnia, a covering that matched her bitter, cruel rule. Everything was cold and hopeless. It was, in the words of Mr. Beaver, always winter, but never Christmas. That was the setting, the feeling for Israel as they struggled under their own despotic rule. Always winter, but never Christmas. And maybe for some of you, that's how you feel this morning. Maybe life has thrown you one punch after another, and just when you struggle to get back on your feet, you are punched again. Always winter, never Christmas. Perhaps there's a winter of discontent that's nipping at your own heart and you find it easier just to give in to outrage, the chaotic fuel of our social engine, than to cling to, yet alone express any kind of hope. For you, it might feel like always winter, but, but never Christmas. Or maybe you're experiencing more of a hopeless malaise brought about through the survival mechanism of just giving up. You aren't outraged. You don't care at all. You find yourself walking through life like a zombie, which is preferable to experiencing the heartbreak and sadness of hope deferred, the kind of thing that this world brings all too often. Always winter, but never Christmas. told you that the, the, this beautiful phrase comes from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, but the plot of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, of course, does not turn on that phrase, always winter, but never Christmas. That's just the setting. The plot turns on another phrase that inspired hope in all the faithful Narnians. Aslan is on the move. The king is returning. Our passage today Another story, but this one wonderfully true, also turns on that same kind of phrase. Heaven is on the move. The king is returning. So this morning, if you're here and maybe you're, you're not a follower of Christ, you haven't given yourself over to Jesus yet, maybe for you, it, like, like always winter and never Christmas, describes you. And so I would invite you, listen with open ears and open heart and open mind to the beginning of the greatest story ever told. It's, it's great because of the characters. It's great because of the hope promised, but it's great because it's true. And it offers, if you'll listen, a solution. If you are a Christian, maybe you feel the same kind of way, even though you are a believer, always, Chris, always winter but never Christmas. You believe the story of the first Christmas is true, but the cares, the troubles, the assaults of the world are weighing in on you. And it feels like a never-ending winter of the soul. So I would invite you, listen again to the hope 
that Christmas promises. We begin in in verse 26. Verse 26. Heaven is on the move. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So heaven is on the move. That's, that, that's evident from the very first phrase here. The angel Gabriel is sent from God, sent from God. Heaven is acting. Just prior, if we had been reading in the first part of Luke 1, Gabriel had been sent to the epicenter of Jewish religious life, the temple, to speak to the priest whose charge was to offer the incense in the holy place. Now the God who is on the move visits a small village. It's a village that is so obscure that Luke has to tell us what region it's in. So if we wanted to, we could find it on a map. No one knows where Nazareth is. And a popular saying of the day, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The locale seems extraordinarily ordinary. So is the recipient of the visitation. A virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph, her name, was Mary. Who's Mary? To whom is she betrothed? Where are they? Why is this important? Well, uh, a bit of background is important here, and and many of you are aware of this, but being engaged in the ancient Near East was a bit different than engagements in our day. Most proposals in our day are planned to make a lasting memory or at least a really good Instagram post, right? Engagement in the ancient Near East, very different. A, A betrothal was, was worked out between families, a bridal price was agreed to, and the, woman was ref- and, and the woman was legally referred to as the man's wife. But it was only about a year later, that's how long most engagements lasted, that the wedding ceremony took place, and at that point, the bride would go to live with her husband, and only at that point. Mary is in that point. The engagement is set. She is legally engaged. She's understood to be the wife of Joseph, but they do not live together. The, the, the marriage has not been consummated. So there, it, it's this very strange thing to our ears to, to break an engagement in, in that time period very much unlike ours. Ours, you know, the, the, you know, there's like maybe angry or disappointing words and, and maybe a ring is given back and, and perhaps you have to make an embarrassing announcement to, you know, thanks for uh, saving the date, but you don't have to anymore. But, but, but it's not legal, right? In, in that day, it, it was a legal process, much like a divorce would be for us. And, and, and we're told here that, that Mary's a virgin, and, and quite frankly, that's the least surprising part of the narrative. There was nothing out of the ordinary about a young, engaged girl being a virgin. In fact, it probably didn't even need to be mentioned, but it was. And, and the reason why it's so important that, that Luke verify this for us is, is going to be made evident here in, in, in the later announcement. Mary's, Mary's engagement, though, to whom she is betrothed is very interesting. She's marrying into the house and family of David. And 
Any child born to Mary, therefore, will be legally Davidic. And, and that's very, very significant. Why? Because David was the greatest of all the Israelites, and there is nothing in our culture, our American culture, that approximates what David was for Israel and still is for Israel. Imagine like a combination of George Washington, John Williams, and, and Billy Graham rolled into one. Israel's greatest king, greatest pastor, greatest songwriter. If the nation was ever to be put right, if, if worship was ever going to be right again, if there was ever going to be joy again, it would be because God is on the move through the return of the great King David. And that had been promised, right? We, we, we saw that in our Advent reading. Someone from the, the, the stump of, death, of, of Jesse, David's father, which is interesting because it's not just a Davidic son that is promised. I mean, Israel had seen lots of Davidic sons in their day. It's like really, quite frankly, the last thing they needed was another one of David's crummy sons. What they needed was a new David. A shoot from the stump of Jesse would come. Notice the greeting too. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, that's not just a throwaway. It's not a wish or a prayer, and it's not even really a blessing, like, may the Lord be with you. It's, it's a statement of the Lord's abiding presence, and it would definitely be needed as Mary was going to be asked to go through a lot. The announcement begins with a statement, a promise of the Lord's presence. Come what may, the Lord is with Mary, and she is favored. Christian, at Christmas we remembered that the Lord was on the move at the birth of Jesus, and he will finish what he has started. At, at Christmas we remembered that the, the primary actor, at least at this point in the initiation of the plan, was a teenage girl who was so completely insignificant by worldly standards that she didn't even make, a, uh, make any sort of waves on the social scene. No one knew who she was, but the Lord did. Her life up to the visitation was anything but extraordinary. And I think this shows us that the Lord takes the humble things of this world and uses them in extraordinary ways. It goes to show that faithfulness in the humble things, courage in the mundane, selflessness in a world where everybody's clamoring to be the next social influencer, it is seen by the Lord. I'm not saying that Mary earned God's favor, but I am saying that your faithfulness in humble things is absolutely seen by God, and worldly attention is absolutely no indicator of heavenly appraisal or approval. So I encourage you all, as you slog through life right now, do the right thing even the humble things, especially the humble things, and know you are seen by God. If the Lord was with Mary to initiate his plans, he will certainly, in fulfillment of his promise to you, be with you as he brings those plans to conclusion. The Lord is with you. That's, I mean, Christmas hammers that point home, right? Because what's another name for Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. The announcement, not merely that heaven is on the move, but the king is returning. 
Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the the last verse that we read first here, Mary knows that she's been put on notice but she doesn't quite know what to make of it. She's curious, she's pondering, and so the angel responds to her. He starts with, really, the first thing that angels always say, right? What's the first thing that comes out of an angel's mouth anytime an angel is talking to a human? It's either get up or don't be afraid, because they are awesome, right? They they, they are um, uh, terrifying in awesomeness, if you will. And so if you're right thinking, you are either afraid or you're on the ground, before the angel. And, and so, so it's the same thing here. The angel starts with a typical fear not, or more, more precisely, really stop fearing. Stop fearing. And, and the angel gives a statement about Mary. So he, he tells her, you have found favor with God. And those are wonderful words to hear, right? They, they were angelic words that greeted many Old Testament saints, like, like Noah, who found favor with the Lord, or Gideon, or Hannah. If, if Mary was listening, and, and it seems like she was, she was about to fall into that line of heroes. The Lord was on the move, finally, finally. And Mary was going to be able to play a critical role in his great work. She's also greeted by strange news. She is about to conceive and bear a son, and she was to name him Jesus. Now, we know from Matthew's account that her fiancé Joseph was given much the same news. His, though, came not in an angelic visitation, but in a dream only after the child was conceived, and he was told to name the child Jesus. Jesus, or in the Hebrew, Yeshua, or as we might pronounce it in a more anglicized version, Joshua, means the Lord saves. So that's kind of an indicator about what the Lord was about to do. And it was no doubt a very popular name. I mean, it's like today, it would seem weird if people named their kid Jesus, but there was nothing odd about naming your child Joshua any more than it would be odd today to name your, your child Joshua. If you're wondering where the name Jesus even comes from, that's, that's our anglicized version of the Greek Iesus, or Jesus. So the name, actually, Jesus, even though it has a cool meaning, the Lord saves, not all that remarkable, but what is said of the child is absolutely jaw-dropping. The child will be great and will be son of the Most High. Most high God speaks to power and majesty. It's a name that's used throughout the Bible in situations of praise. The the Lord is often designated by certain names depending on the need of the hour. When the Lord sees the needs of his people, he is El Roy, or that's how we say it in, in English oftentimes, the God who sees. When the Lord is needed in battle, he is Yahweh Tzavot 
the Lord of hosts. When power is needed, it's El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. And when overall greatness and superiority over all spiritual forces in the world is needed, it is El Elyon, God most high. And the God who is on the move, the child to be born, is son of God most high. Now, word of a, of a son of God would have been strange to Mary's ears. But what was told her next, she had absolutely no categories for. The king is coming. Mary's son would be given the throne of his father, David. So at long last, the promised son of David would appear and his reign would be not just a lifetime, although I guess it is a lifetime, a lifetime for an eternal being. Centuries before, the Lord had made this promise to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. And then numerous prophets coming after that Davidic promise after Samuel predicted one from the line of Jesse would ascend to the throne and usher in an eternal era of peace and prosperity, numerous prophets picked up this line of thinking over and over again, including Isaiah that we read earlier. And, and, and I, I'm going to interrupt our regular scheduled program for a little advertisement here. We're reading a bunch of Old Testament passages here. What, a, what we're going to encourage everyone in church to do this next year is uh, do a Bible read-through. You can, we'll, have, we'll have more information on how to do that, but in, in the year 2024, let's, let's all read all the Bible together so we can get our, wrap our arms around this, this great story of, uh, of redemption. More on that later. Okay, back to regularly scheduled programming. Okay, uh, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, another Old Testament prophet, had a vision of a great man who would rule forever. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. It like, looked like a human, right? And he came to the ancient of days, God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So, as I said earlier, for centuries, the people had waited in and out of exile under Roman rule and tyranny, always winter but never Christmas until God determined, okay, that is enough. In the first part of Luke 1, there are promises made to the priest Zechariah accompanied by a great sign. His aged wife is going to have a child who's going to be forerunner to the great Christ, the great Messiah. And, and maybe following that, there began to be a bit of a whisper campaign. The Lord is on the move. Did you hear what happened to Zechariah? But few would have dared believe that their greatest hopes were about to be realized. The king is finally returning. And with the coming of the king, that means the kingdom of the king is near. And of course, that would be Jesus' message to all who heard him. Repent. For the kingdom of God is near. So Mary responds. She, she, she has a really good question. She gets a better answer. 
Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Here's the answer. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary is rightly confused. Granted, she's from Nazareth, understood to be kind of a backwater town, but no one had ever conceived while remaining a virgin, and Mary understood the birds and the bees. She didn't have to live through the 60s sexual revolution or go to some gender studies program today to know how things work. She had not yet been with a man, and so conception was impossible. Now, if we had been reading from the very beginning of the book of Luke, this would raise a question for us. Zechariah, the priest, was told that his aged wife would finally conceive, and that question was not met with much patience, was it? How dare you? disbelief. How dare you doubt? And Zechariah's punishment, and also a sign, (laughs) was struck dumb. He could not speak until the birth of his son, John. He'd asked the same exact question that Mary asked, how can this be? And yet Mary is given a very patient answer. Why is that? Is it just because angels are nicer to women? Maybe I don't know about that for sure. I don't know. I have, I have nothing to judge it by, but I don't think that's what's going on here. You see, Zechariah should have known better because this had happened before. He's a priest of Israel, and Israel's existence was based upon God on the move, opening up the womb of Sarah so the greatest patriarch of all, Abraham, could start to have children. God had been there and done that before. But this is a new thing with Mary. This is a new thing. Zechariah had forgotten. Mary hasn't forgotten this, right? How can I conceive I've never been with a man? And of course, you get the wonderful statement from the angel, nothing is impossible with God. What was done with Mary had never been done before. He had opened lots of wombs, but he had never caused a virgin conception. So hers was a very good question. And then there is another question for us. Why a virgin conception? I mean, why do that? Why do that? Luke had just noted that she was a virgin, and I mentioned before that that he didn't really need to tell us that. That would have been very typical, right? Matthew, in his gospel account, he connects Mary's virgin conception to Isaiah's prophecy that we read in our call to worship. So so there is a fulfillment of prophecy prophecy aspect here. But then that would would also raise the question, why even have that be prophesied? Why, Why do that? Some have suggested that it was necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin so that the sin nature would not pass down to him. And the idea being that a sin nature is passed down from the father, not the mother. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know. Probably a lady, I'm guessing, is where that that originated, but I'm not sure. Uh, The Bible doesn't state that anywhere, that a sin nature is passed down through the Father. And so the the sinlessness of Jesus is going to be sourced in something other than the lack of a human father. So again, why a virgin conception? 
I think it's because it's just jaw-dropping awesome, right? It's just jaw-dropping awesome. There is a wow factor that is attached to that. Now, if we wanted to speculate, we could think, well, how, what, what better way could God do uh, the, the enfleshment of the eternal Son of God who takes on a human nature? We might think that that would be a way to do it, but I don't know if it's necessary. I just know that a virgin conception is awesome. It is jaw-dropping. And what does that tell us? That the Lord is on the move because nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is impossible for him, even something that seemed absolutely impossible. And God says, I can do that. I can do it. The conception, though, is about the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, will overshadow you. The same language that's used in Genesis, where the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. The same language that's used throughout the Old Testament to speak of the, uh, the, the Spirit of God in, in the midst of the people, hovering over them, caring for them. It shows that God is on the move in a new creation sort of way with Jesus. It's the direct intervention of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. This initiates a presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus Christ that will accompany him through and beyond his death and resurrection from conception all the way to ascension. The Holy Spirit is there with Christ. In fact, if you think about it, it was the presence and power in the life of the Son the presence and power of the Spirit in the life of the Son that makes him the Messiah, the Christ. What, what does Christ mean? What does Messiah mean in the Hebrew? Anointed one. Anointed with what? Anointed with the Spirit of God. The presence and power of the Spirit in the life of Jesus Christ was the number one indicator that he is the Christ. And it starts at conception. It starts at conception. The Son, we are told because of the Spirit, will be called holy. The one set apart by the Spirit, sanctified, consecrated for, for purpose by the Spirit of God. And I think the sinlessness flows, the sinlessness of Jesus flows out of that, the presence and power of the Spirit of God evidence to Mary that this is going to happen to you is given to her by the, by the mention of her, her relative Elizabeth. She had conceived in her old age. The Lord is on the move. Now, who is this child who comes from such, such an extraordinary beginning? Son of the Most High. Son of God, but simultaneously son of David. One born who is simultaneously God and human. Who could conceive of such a thing? Clearly only God. Clearly only God most high. Should Israel have been waiting for such a thing? I, I, I know. So what we here in the church, we're so used to hearing about the deity and humanity of Jesus combined together. Should Israel have been waiting for that? And there were actually some hints. I'll take you to one place in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, the context of the passage is that Ezekiel 
and Israel are in exile in Babylon, and the temple back in Jerusalem has been destroyed. And in Ezekiel 34, the Lord is castigating the shepherds, the leaders of his people Israel for failing in their God-appointed task. They did not provide, they did not protect, they did not guide, they did not care. Those are the four things that shepherds did. They didn't do any of those things for the people of Israel. In fact, they did the opposite They preyed upon them and fattened themselves up at the expense of the people that they were supposed to take care of. They were the worst kind of false shepherd. And there is nothing in the Bible that that ignites the white-hot wrath of God more than those who abuse their God-given authority to care for God's people. And so he is irate through this. And then he says this, beginning in verse 11, Thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. The shepherds had not done that. God would do it. I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Who's going to shepherd the people of Israel? God is going to do it himself. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Who's going to do it? The pronoun I, and then I myself, over and over and over and over and over again. God is going to do it. And yet, in the very next breath, just a verse later, the Lord says, I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Kind of like Pharaoh, so let it be written, so let it be done. God is going to do it, right? But, and so who is it? Which is it? Is God going to be the shepherd or is David? Which one? And the answer is yes, yes, both of them, both of them together. How can that be? How can a human from the line of David be simultaneously God in the flesh? Those are the kind of questions that maybe people would have had if they had been reading their Bibles. So so what was whispered, though, in the past is now made clear. How can David, King David, be given a throne where one of his sons would rule forever from a throne that transcends all thrones? Remember, Chapter 1, verse 33 that we read. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. If the son of David is simultaneously the son of God, that's how it can be done. And that is the miracle of Christmas. God in the flesh appearing at just the right time. This is the Lord is on the move. What does it mean that the king has come and his kingdom is forever It means that we, Christian, know who rules over everything. Now, that rule right now is not public, but it is nevertheless very real, and one day it will be public. It means that the love of God is on display in the person of Jesus. It is God on the move. It shows us that God who cares for us, in fact, is the God who rules. And though it might seem to be always winter, The powers of this world are mere pawns in the hands of the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Christmas teaches us to have hope. It teaches us to keep our heads bowed in prayer and our neck bowed into and against leaning into the assaults of the world because we know who is really in charge. It tells us that Jesus Christ did not come merely to die to reconcile us to God, although he did do that. But the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are part of a much bigger kingdom agenda. Look at this passage and consider all that this child born to Mary is going to accomplish. And if you are not a follower of Jesus to this point, there is no better time to come to Christ than during a celebration of his first advent. The good news of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Christmas initiates. The promise of the gospel is that if anyone will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Jesus didn't come merely to die for your sins, but he didn't come for less. He came to create a kingdom of people, and the invitation to you is that you can have your sins forgiven and be a part of this wonderful kingdom under the rule of a wonderful king. If you haven't done that, come and talk to me. (laughs) Come and talk to me. Look at Mary's response. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary's response is remarkable. She doesn't know yet the trials that she will go through, the shame of an out-of-wedlock pregnancy, the pain of watching her firstborn suffer and die on a Roman cross. But her response right now sets that trajectory. Steadfast faith that would help to raise up Jesus and we know would stand by him until the end, even present at Golgotha. May we all be so faithful. I fear sometimes, we in the Protestant church, we read passages about Mary in with an anti-Catholic bias because of false teaching, I think, about Mary being some sort of mediatrix between us and God, But boy, we dare not, as we are reacting against some false teaching, denigrate the true teaching of Mary. She is amazing, amazing in her faithfulness. God didn't choose or raise up just anybody to be the mother to his beloved son. Taylor Swift is the most famous woman in the world right now, but in 50 years, she will only be remembered when people visit like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or maybe oldies are played on the radio station, but people will still remember Mary. They will still remember her. Long after, long time after, all the great women that our society loves so much are dead and gone. On the day of judgment, Christian, Christian, 
your faithfulness and sacrificial service to the king will be proclaimed to the cosmos, remembered forever. So do what is right. Do what matters most now. Be faithful. Follow, if you will, this good example from this teenage girl who just got earth-shattering, jaw-dropping news. All right, we're here 2,000 years later. Jesus has come and gone. 2,000 years of waiting for his return, seemingly caught in the time in between times of his first and second advent. And sometimes even now, it can seem like it's always winter, but never Christmas. But Advent teaches us to have hope. We look forward to celebrating the, the first Christmas, and it reminds us that God was in, on the move in that first Advent of Jesus. And we must remember this, that since Jesus came, it's never actually always winter, but never Christmas. Christmas has come. And in four weeks, we will, we will remember that first Christmas. But we will celebrate with hope, right? The King has come. And the King will come again. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, uh, we're so grateful for passages like this because it shows us that, that, that you care. Um, it, it, uh, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to feel. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds that, that, that understand that, that you are indeed on the move in Christ. And, and, and what you started, you will most certainly bring to completion. I pray, Father, this day that you would give us hope. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.